Amen. You may be seated. And also, we're going to dismiss our children uh, to go and uh, learn about the Lord Jesus uh, with Mrs. Rolf and uh, also Miss Bissell, Mrs. Bissell. So we're excited to uh, send them off for not what we would call babysitting, but for discipleship. That's what Renovation Kids is all about, uh, coming alongside parents to disciple their children in the faith. So I can't believe it's been almost 20 years since I did the unthinkable at the age of 18, looked into the beautiful eyes of my then-girlfriend and said, will you marry me? And if you think that's unthinkable, uh, you could not imagine her response. Uh, if you know me, yes. You're thinking, who's crazier, the 18-year-old or uh, the 19-year-old saying yes? And so we were getting married. And we did what all Christian couples did in 1998 when they were about to get married, I presume. They went to the Mecca of spirituality, Lemstone. Does anybody remember Lemstone Bookstore at Great Northern Mall? Man, I am so relevant. So we went to the Christian bookstore and Doreen... Realizing that we were very clueless, everyone was telling us that, you guys are clueless, you have no idea what you're getting yourself into, and really we didn't, but yet we were those type A, spiritual, or, uh, type a personality uh, people that said, you know what, we're going to follow the plan. So we got the Christian Wedding Book Planner. Anybody else get that? Again, I'm relevant. We got the Christian wedding planner. And then, of course, we saw that it was like 200 pages long and had list upon list, chapter upon chapter. In order to prepare well for your Christian wedding, you better think through this issue, that issue, this idea, that creative element. And as you can imagine, over an 18-year period, guess what happened often? We got lost. In the list. In the midst of planning for a very dramatic and meaningful moment, an event, we easily were getting lost in the list of things to do in preparation for that event. We got lost on the verge of potentially missing the moment. I wonder as we conclude this section in the book of Exodus together in the moments at Sinai where we've, over the last 13 weeks, gone through the Ten Commandments, this moment where the people of God are at the base of the mountain, and we've walked through this list, if you will, Ten Commandments. Do not have any other gods before me. Do not bear false witness in the others. That we've almost missed the moment. As if this was like a 13-week experience where they heard a word from God and they analyzed the living daylights out of it in 45-minute sessions and then went away for a week and came back. You see, that's not what happened. We're in the midst of a moment, an event, 
and I don't want us to miss it for what it is. So let's enter back into the story. Open up your Bibles to Exodus 20. We're going to read together verses 18 through 21. We're going to open our eyes and our ears, give attention to the Lord so that He might make the most of this moment in our lives. Let's see how this Ten Commandments comes to a close. Verse 18 says this, Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear. For God has come to test you, that the fear of Him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This is God's word, and all God's people said, Amen. Thirteen weeks. Again, it almost is missed, the dramatic nature, the, the cosmic nature of this event, this moment in the lives of the Israelites as they're coming out of Egypt. I was thinking about it. It's so dramatic. That it, that it almost gets lost. It's, it's almost like going to the way we've engaged this since, since mid-May. It's almost like we went to a heavy metal concert, and after every song, we took a one-week break. Right? When, when that happens, you almost, something is lost. And I want to bring us back to this moment. Look at what happens. When the people saw the thunder and the flash of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled. You see, you go back to 19, that's the kind of experience that this was. This was no calm, slow, reflective, dig deep, think about it moment. This was a very dramatic event where heaven and earth were involved, where there's creation at work. Literally, thunders, lightnings, a thick cloud, a very loud trumpet blast. This is not a quiet moment for reflection. This is indeed a one of great piercing volume in the ears of all those who were nearby. This is a dramatic, cosmic moment that is having personal effect on every individual that is present. God has come to Sinai. And it is so dramatic, so effective, that the people are scared out of their minds. 
Literally, they physically were affected. This was not like what we do when we sing, Lord, we bow before your throne in the worship service, and nobody is really bowing. You ever been to that? Lord, we raise our hands, and everybody's like this, right? I lift my, my hands to you, and we're just... Not like that. Like, they literally trembled, shook in the presence of a holy God. Fear had overtaken them in this dramatic moment. This is often how sinful, profane humanity experiences the presence of the holy. How they respond to the presence of almighty, holy God in the scriptures. Many of you may be thinking now of other examples, like Isaiah, right? Where in Isaiah chapter 6, he has a vision of the Lord in his throne room. He's brought into the presence of the king, who's not Uzziah or anybody else. The king is the Lord. And in that moment, how does he respond as he, as a sinful man, is in the presence of a holy God? He says, woe is me. For I'm lost, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. How about Ezekiel? In the presence of what he saw was the fullness of the glory of God. What does he say? He says, when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. The presence of the Holy, the voice of the Holy One, causing fear, causing awe, trembling, falling. And I think one of the most profound examples is in the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, where John sees the risen, exalted Jesus, and what does the text say happened to him? When I saw him, he says, I fell at his feet as though dead. The presence of Almighty Holy God and His voice that is spoken to the Israelites in this moment is causing them great fear. It is striking awe in their hearts as they also hear the piercing voice of God and His revelation, His expectation. It is altogether too much for sinful, profane humanity. Maybe you've had these very experiences in your life. Where the presence of God was so near and real to you. Or the, the power and the authority of the Word of God being preached being read, being considered and meditated upon, maybe in the middle of the night, awakening you. That it is physically affecting you. That it is literally causing a sense of awe and terror in your soul. Have you ever had that kind of a moment? R.C. Sproul in his book, The Holiness of God, talks about a moment when he was in college where he could not sleep. He felt this presence all around him that, that caused him to be very uncomfortable and awkward. And so he ran to a place he didn't know where else to go, to, 
to the um, to a, a church building, his 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 uh, to the sanctuary. And he remember being there at his feet on his knees, trembling before the Lord. And he says this: when we're aware of the presence of God, we become most aware of ourselves as creatures. Right? We're so small in the presence of a huge God. Infinitely huge. When we meet the absolute, we know immediately that we are not absolute. When we meet the infinite, we become acutely conscious that we are finite. When we meet the eternal, we know that we are temporal. If you had that moment where the presence of God affected you, where the Word of God was declared with such clarity and conviction that it pierced you, as Hebrews chapter 4 says. That it pierces you, judges you, down to the bones and the marrow. That's what's happening here. They're afraid and they trembled. Look at what they say. Standing far off, they say to Moses, verse 19, you speak to us and we'll listen. But don't let God speak to us lest we die. You see, they were so afraid of this presence and voice of God that they want nothing to do with it. Better put, it was such an intense moment, intense contrast between the majesty and the glory and the holiness and purity of Yahweh in this moment as compared to their sin and their profanity and their finiteness, there was such contrast that they literally could not handle it anymore. It was so striking awe into their hearts that they literally felt as if it happened any longer. If they heard the voice of God anymore, that they were going to die. It was going to kill them. So God's holiness inspires them to keep a distance because the holiness of God is a bothersome reality to profane, sinful people, isn't it? Even now, you're kind of uncomfortable right now. The holiness of God is an awkward, bothersome reality that we want to keep a distance from. How about the story with Peter? In Luke chapter 5, right? He's, he's a fisherman. He knows how to catch fish. It's what he does. It's his job. So he goes out, and he's trying all day with his comrades and his partners. Hey, man, it's been one of those long days. Nothing has happened. It's treadmill living, working hard, receiving nothing in return. And so Jesus shows up, the rabbi, to tell the fisherman what to do. He said, oh, dude, you're on the wrong side of the boat. Just cast the net on the other side of the boat. And Peter's like, seriously? Really? Okay. Sure, Jesus. Just because you said so, I'll do it. Maybe a little eye roll there. Maybe I'm reading into things. I don't know. So he casts it on the other side of the boat. And what happens? The net's full. So full that it's breaking. And how does Peter respond? He goes, Jesus, you're awesome, man. Thank you so much for making me look like a moron. Is that what Jesus said? Or that what Peter said? No. Depart from me, Lord. 
for I'm a sinful man. In that moment, Peter was face to face with the presence of God and the piercing word of God that told him what to do and made a miracle of it. He wanted nothing to do with it. The holiness of God was a bothersome reality that he wanted nothing to do with. And for so many of us, it's the same. Some of us entangled in sin or caught in pride. Or maybe addicted to a worldly pleasure. Somehow we find ourselves unattracted to the Lord, don't we? We're not really interested in being in His presence. We're not really interested or attracted to the idea that God in His Word is going to reveal Himself to us to prevent us from sin, to correct our error. We don't want anything to do with that. We will avoid God at any cost when we're caught in sin, stuck in pride, or addicted to some worldly pleasure. Correct me if I'm wrong. I see it often in people, and I counsel them. I see it often. They just, they, they don't, they, be, they begin to get entangled in sin, or, or maybe uh, uh, poisoned by pride, and all of a sudden, they're, they're kind of lackluster in church attendance. I'm not saying church attendance is everything. They're all of a sudden doing other things. Other things are more enjoyable than being with God's people in His presence. You ask them, how's your devotional life? Well, I haven't really read the Bible in months. Interesting. There's a correlation. They don't have accountability where God's presence in the midst of His people is given and His Word is being taught. You see, when we are profane, we're stuck in those things, we're living unholy lives, the last thing we're attracted to is the bothersome reality of the holy presence of God in His Word. We're not interested. Or maybe that's not it. Maybe you feel so shamed by the things that you're stuck in that you feel like, listen, if I walk into church, lightning will strike me dead. Have you heard that one? Hear that often in central New York. First, got to get myself together. Then I'll deserve going into the presence of God, albeit some issues with that thinking. We're always in the presence of God, aren't we? Maybe that's where you are today. Maybe you're living in God avoidance. Maybe you're living in a state of Scripture silence. Maybe it's because every time you look at it, as we know the law does, we see it as a mirror reflecting the true nature of who we are as a people. Maybe the gospel is no longer all that enjoyable to you. Maybe there's some worldly pleasure that's just got you by the heart. And so you find yourself choosing it or that person over being in the presence of God and allowing His Word to speak directly to your heart and situation. We also see in this statement 
Verse 19, you speak to us, we'll listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. You see, in this moment we see the contrast is really a conflict. The holy and the profane. God shows up with his presence, he shows up with his word, and the people feel a conflict in their spirit so much that it's going to kill them that they realize we need a mediator. This isn't going to work. We need an in-between. Moses, you do it. For whatever reason, you seem to be able to handle it. You seem to be able to go into the presence of God, hear his audible voice, and by some work of divine grace, you're able to stand as an in-between with us. You go deal with God. You tell us what he says. And so Moses becomes an in-between, a mediator of a relationship between a sinful, profane nation, yet redeemed out of Egypt, and a holy God that is making covenant with them, right? There's a mediator, an in-between. In order for the profane to have relationship with Almighty God, there must be an in-between, a mediator that is Moses. And we know that ultimately, that mediator of the new covenant is no one more, no one less than Jesus Christ, who is our mediator, who is our in-between, who stands in the gap and represents both God and man. Whatever the case may be, this moment we see that the, the presence and the voice of a holy God is striking awe when experienced by these sinful people. They're scared out of their minds, but the question becomes, is this really a life-threatening reality for them? It's interesting what Moses says, verse 20. Moses said to the people, do not fear. Well, that's kind of odd advice, isn't it? In this mo is he completely disconnected from this experience? Has he lost touch? There we go again, leaders losing touch. They're out of touch with reality from what people are really going through. Is Moses somewhere else? Is he not experiencing what we're experiencing? Your advice for us in this life-threatening moment is do not fear. Come on. That's your counsel? Well, what we see here really is reassurance. There's no reason to fear as God's redeemed people. Fear being dread of death. See, they felt the fear that the presence and the voice of God was going to kill them. But for God's redeemed people, the presence and the voice of God is not intended for harm, but for healing. And we're going to see how that takes place. This is not a life-threatening reality for the people of God. Someone say amen to that. That when God shows up and when God speaks to his people, this is not God coming to kill us. He's coming to give us life, as we're going to see. So this is no life-threatening reality. It's a life-giving reality. Look at what he goes on to say. You have no need to fear as God's redeemed people. You have no need to fear. Why? For God has come to test you. He's not come to kill you. He's not come to do you harm. That's not why God is in the midst of his redeemed people. As awesome as it is, it's not for our harm. He's come to test you. He's come to evaluate you. 
He's come to put on display who you really are. And he's waiting to see, he's going to see if you are truly his redeemed people that are fearing him. Which seems like double talk, which we'll talk about in a moment. That's the effect of the presence of God. When he shows up and when he speaks, it is an evaluation. It is an examination of who we are. And it's perfect as it qualifies and quantifies our nature. It's perfect. You know, in the world, we may be able to fake some out. We may be able to project in front of people this super spirituality. All is well. How you doing? Good or busy, whichever it is. Everything's fine. We may be able to put on a spiritual show, but when God comes, when He's in the room, and when his voice speaks and it pierces, there's no hiding the reality of who we are. Who we are is laid bare before him. So he's come not to kill but to test. And he's come to put the fear of him before them. Don't miss that. That what God is doing is placing his fear before them by revealing himself and by speaking to them. That's what God wants for us, for us to fear Him. And again, that feels like double talk, doesn't it? It almost feels like you're at a red light, and you see the red light and the green light illuminated at the same time. And you're kind of like, hmm. It's like paralyzing. Do not fear. God wants the fear of Him before you. What's going on here? Like I said, there's... Two kinds of fear. One is God dreading. That's not the kind of fear the Lord has for His redeemed people. Scared out of your mind. God's going to kill me. Run for the hills. Have nothing to do with Him. He's a threat to us. Not that He's altogether safe for us, which is a C.S. Lewis thing. But as John says in 1 John 4, there's no fear in love, Right? Because perfect love does what? Casts out fear. Well, wait, wait, wait. Does that mean we shouldn't fear the Lord? No. What kind of fear? It goes on to say, fear involves what? Punishment. You see, we're not to fear the Lord that He is going to pour out His wrath on His redeemed people. That He's going to punish us. We're not to fear Him and dread Him that He's come to harm us. That is not His intent. Not that kind of fear. And yet at the same time, the Lord desires that we as His redeemed people would be fearing Him. Jerry Bridges talks a lot about this in his book. He says, to fear God is to have reverence in recognition of His infinite worth and dignity, admiration of His glorious attributes, and amazement at His infinite love. Right? It's about worship. It's about awe. It's about treasuring Him, celebrating Him. It's about giving Him praise. It's about loyalty. One person said it's about covenant loyalty. To fear the Lord is to be completely loyal to Him and Him alone. The fear of the Lord is about obedience to His commands. It's a loaded term. 
And it's our response to who he is. He shows up. We experience his presence. He speaks to us. He tells us who he is, how we're to live. He reveals his righteousness. And then what do we do? We react. We respond. And that response is that we fear the Lord. That is, we wonder at his infinite attributes. Right? We stand in awe of his goodness. Right? We worship him. We're loyal to him. And we obey his command as our greatest treasure, as what we believe to be the walkway, the pathway of peace in life. That's the fear of the Lord. And the Lord wants that for his redeemed people. Matter of fact, that's why he has redeemed these people. That they may walk in the fear of the Lord. We see John Murray saying that fearing God is the reflex in our consciousness. See, it's a response. It's the reflex in our consciousness of the transcendent majesty and holiness of God. We interact with God. We respond with awe. Awe is struck in our hearts. And we see that with the ultimate aim here is that why God shows up at Sinai, why God reveals Himself so powerfully and personally with such cosmic uh, effects, why does God speak to His people, why does God reveal the law, read it for me, read it with me, that you may not sin. I said... That this moment is not a life-threatening reality. It's a life-giving one. And we see that God is giving us life by what? Taking away, stopping sin in us. Sin is death. Hear that today. Your sin is your death. And it is leading you to death. And so God, in desiring to give His redeemed people life by His presence in His Word, is going to do so the only way He can, by taking away our sin. He does not want us to sin. You say, well, He's kind of grumpy just making up rules. That's not it. He's saving us from that which is killing us, our sin. Someone may say, what does God want for my life? What's God's will for my life? You hear that often. I've been praying. I've been trying to figure out what God wants for my life. What's God's will for my life? Friends, search no longer for the will of God. This is it. That you may not sin. Be an attorney. Be a mechanic. Cut some meat up in here. It's okay. That's holy work. This is what God wants for you. That you may not sin. He's giving us life. Some people answer that question, I know what God wants for me. He wants me to be happy. I know what God wants for me. He doesn't want me to endure uh, any sense of suffering or adversity or difficulty. 
The American gospel says, if you love Jesus, everything's going to go well. You're never going to have any problems. And if you do have problems, it's because you don't fear the Lord enough. You don't trust him enough. Because ultimately, our gospel says that God wants me to be happy and God wants me to be comfortable. But what we see here is the opposite, that God is not concerned about our happiness. He's concerned about our holiness. He's less concerned about our comfort levels, and he's more concerned about our Christ-likeness. That's what God wants for us. He wants us to be sinless and holy, to be like him so that we can know him and truly have life, not death. Amen? The presence and the word of God strikes awe in us for the purpose of stopping sin in us. That's what I see here. This Sinai covenant, this powerful moment that they did not miss is one we cannot miss. And yet I think this mountain, this cosmic event, where there's thunder and lightning, where creation is going bonkers, where people are scratching their heads and they're nervous and they're jerky and they're, they're terrified, where the presence of God is manifest with His people, where His Word is declared with authority, only brings us to another mountain. Years later, called Golgotha. It brings us to another cosmic event where the presence of God in Jesus Christ, where the Word who was made flesh, John 1, came into the world as one that represents humanity and one who represents divinity and is essentially divine, came into the world for the purpose of stopping sin in God's redeemed people. Christ came as the presence of God amongst men. Christ came as the very Word of God, the explanation of the Father. This is who I am. You want to know how to live? This is ethics. This is righteousness. Walk in His ways. He is the perfect example and essence of who I am. He is the image of God. And he came into this world and he lived a perfect sinless life. And we stand at the base of Golgotha with the sun being turned to darkness and with earthquakes around. And it is in this moment, a moment unlike any other, standing at the base of Golgotha on that mount where Jesus hung there in our place 
for our sin as the presence of God, as the word of God, as the mediator, as the substitute, the sacrifice. As Jesus was up there, we recognize that God is passionate about dealing with the thing that causes our death, sin. So passionate that he was willing to incur the penalty that it deserved on our behalf, death. We have no fear of death. Christ took death upon himself on the cross. If that does not strike awe in the heart of you, nothing will. Nothing. Nothing will have personal impact to that degree to motivate inside your soul to not sin. This is the gospel. It is the work of Christ. It is the presence of God and the word of God in him that is the remedy for our contrast. It is the thing that draws us near to God. It is the thing through his resurrection. You talk about a cosmic event. The resurrection of Jesus. The death could not hold him because he was sinless. It was that cosmic event that we stand in awe and we say, Now I'm not going to sin. Now I can fear the Lord. Man, when I see that, awe is struck in my heart. What wonder and beauty and glory. What loyalty he has shown to his people. What loyalty and commitment he has had to sinful humanity that he desires to redeem. That he's willing to die for me. Man, there's nothing else that is going to motivate me to not sin other than that. Matter of fact, nothing else can give the power to turn away from sin and turn to him and to fear him and obey him other than the cross and the resurrection. There's no other way. Holiness no longer becomes a bothersome reality because of Jesus. It's something that we run to. And really, as we understand our hope, it's something that we become. As Philippians chapter 2 so clearly says, work out your salvation with what? Fear and trembling. Where do we hear that? When they saw these things, the people were afraid and they trembled. It's the presence of God, the Word of God, the fear of the Lord that is leading us in obedience and in conformity to Jesus Christ. May we not minimize this. He goes on to say, for it is God who what? Works in you. Presence. It's God who works in you. To will and to act according to what? His good pleasure. According to His ways, His revealed righteousness in the Scriptures. Some of you may be spiritually stagnant. Man, you're stuck in a rut. There's no joy. There's no light. Maybe there's sins that you're clinging too tight to and it's grieving the Spirit, the presence of God in your life. 
Or maybe you're so disconnected from the scriptures that it, you've, you've taken the source of water away from the seeds growing in your life. It's the word of God that causes growth. You say, here we go. He's going to give us a plug to join a small group. You better believe I am because it's the spirit and the word in the context of relationships that's going to cause you to conform to the image of Christ. I don't care what night you go, Wednesday, Thursday, Thursday morning, middle of the night, it doesn't matter. It's about working out our salvation in the fear of the Lord. Because the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life as it prevents us from the snares of death. Proverbs 14, 27. I think this word is one that strikes awe in us. It should. But I think the kind of awe that it strikes brings us to Christ. Amen? It's the kind of awe that draws us into the Scriptures. It attracts us to His presence and His Word. It does not dissuade us from being there. The presence and the Word of God strike awe in us that it may stop sin in us. We're about to enter into a time of communion whereas those who fear the Lord we celebrate His death that gives us life 